0: Section 7 of The Flight of the Heron by D. K. Proster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Eilin. Part 1. Chapter 6. Chapter 6. Four days later, Captain Wyndham was sitting at evening in a dark little hut on the shores of Loch Eil, studying a pocket-book by the light of a small lantern hung on the wattled wall behind him. A pile of heather was all his seat. Outside, it was pouring with rain, but he, unlike almost everyone else, was at least under cover and secure, as he had not been lately, from the attentions of the rapacious Highland midges. It was Thursday, the twenty second of August, and since Monday he had gone with Clan Cameron wherever it went. First of all, Ardroy and his contingent had rendezvoused with the main body of the Clan at the very place where Keith Wyndham now found himself again. Kinlochiel, at the upper end of Lochiel. Here, on that eventful Monday, Keith had had his first meeting with a courteous and polished gentleman whom Clan Cameron followed, Donald Cameron of Lochiel, nineteenth of the name. And Lochiel had appeared so much distressed at the idea of the English officer's continual conveyance with them under guard, even possibly in bonds, for they had no place in which they could conveniently leave him behind that Keith had been prevailed upon to extend the parole, which he had tried to take back from Ardroy, and to regard it as given for the space of one week, dating from the day and hour of his capture in the Great Glen. When that week was up, his jailers seemed to think that they would be able to make other arrangements about his custody. After the rendezvous, the clan had proceeded westwards, in the direction of the coast, along a difficult road between close-pressed craggy mountains, with a grey rock pushed in a myriad places through its sparse covering, and came at last in the afternoon to the trysting place at Glenfinnan. Though he was treated with every civility, and rode in comfort on a horse of ardroys, it had been a mortifying journey for Captain Wyndham. Between the ranks of Camerons marched sulkily the captured recruits of the royals, without their arms, like himself. And even Captain Scott's white charger formed part of the procession, to be offered to the prince. As well, thought the Englishman, be the prisoner of wandering Arabs. So, scornful, but half-interested, too. Keith Wyndham had been present at a scene which, a week ago, he could little have imagined himself witnessing, when, on the stretch of level ground at the head of Loch Shiel, among that wild and lonely scenery, a thousand highland throats acclaimed the fair-haired young man standing below the folds of his banner, and the very air seemed to flash with the glitter of their drawn blades. It was very romantical and absurd, of course, besides being rank rebellion. But there was no denying that these deluded and shaggy mountaineers were in earnest, and Lochiel, too, who was neither shaggy nor, so it seemed to the observer, deluded in quite the same sense, and certainly not absurd. None observing or hindering him during the following days. Captain Wyndham had taken the opportunity of keeping a fragmentary journal in his pocketbook, and it was these notes which, for want of anything better to do, he was now reading over in the little hut in the wet twilight. What an army! It is purely laughable, he had written on August 20th. The men are fine tall fellows enough, particularly the Camerons, but their weapons. I've seen muskets with broken locks, muskets with broken stocks, Muskets without ramrods, and men without muskets at all. There can't be more than a score of saddle-horses, all told, and the draft-horses are quite insufficient for transport over such a road. Moreover, the so-called army is as yet composed of two clans only, the Camerons and some part of the Macdonalds. its number being, I suppose, about thirteen hundred men. The pretender's son, I must admit to be a very personable young man, indeed, with a bel-air, "'they all appear crazed about him. "'My own young Achilles, "'still very well-bred and agreeable, like his chief. "'I never look to see so much native polish "'as Lochiel exhibits. "'Achilles, if I mistake not, pretty well adores him. "'There's also a younger brother of the chiefs, "'whom they call Dr. Archibald. "'With him, also, my warrior seems on very friendly terms.' "'Captain Wyndham turned over to the next two days' records, "'which were briefer.' "'and brought him up to the present date. "'August the twenty-first. "'Set out at last from that cursed spot, Glenfinnan. "'But after an advance of one mile, "'the road was found to be so bad, and the horses so few, "'that the rebels were obliged to leave twelve "'out of their score of swivel guns behind, "'and spend some hours burying them in a bog. "'As their total march today to a place called Kinlochiel "'was no more than four miles,' It looks as though it would be some weeks before the breechless reached civilization. August the 22nd. At Kinlochiel all day. Prodigious rain. Much needed attempts seem to be going forward to organize the transport. Wagons and carts of all sorts being collected. Have scarce seen E.C. all day. But he had hardly come to these last words when a tall wet figure appeared without warning in the low doorway and the diarist restored his notebook somewhat hastily to his pocket. Ardroy stooped his head to enter, taking off his bonnet and swinging it to remove the raindrops. The dampness of the rest of his attire appeared to give him no concern. "'Good evening, Mr. Cameron. Have you been burying any more cannon?' inquired the soldier pleasantly. Ardroy, reddening slightly, made no reply beyond returning the good evening, but hung up his bonnet on a nail and began to unfasten the shoulder brooch of his plaid. There was not a very great deal of satisfaction for Captain Wyndham to be got out of baiting this young Achilles of his, because Achilles kept so tight a hold upon his temper and his tongue. Or was it that he was naturally impassive? (laughs) Hardly, for Keith was sure that he felt the points of the darts, which he contrived from time to time to plant in him. Perhaps Ardroy thought that the best way to meet his captive's malice Was to appear unaware of it, and indeed the archer himself had to confess that this course rather baffled him. He followed up his first shaft by another. You must admit that you should not have brought me here if you did not wish me to learn your military dispositions, if such I am to call that measure. And if the Highlander went on pretending that the unpinning of his plaid was engaging his whole attention, Keith would feel that he had drawn blood. He knew that his own conduct verged on the isle, but the pleasure of pursuing it was too strong. The big brooch, however, was undone at last, and Ewan said rather dryly, I'm glad that your spirits are not suffering from the weather, Captain Wyndham. On the contrary, said his prisoner cheerfully, leaning back against the wall of the hut, his hands behind his head. I am entertaining myself by trying to recall any other great commander who began his campaign by burying most of his artillery in a swamp. But I have failed. Yet, by gad, the plan might work a revolution in warfare. In fact, twould end it altogether if it were carried out to its logical conclusion. Armies would take to the field only to bury their muskets. And perhaps, he added maliciously, that will be your next step. I protest that some of them would not take much harm by the interment. Ewan swung off his plaid. "'Your mirth at our lack of equipment is very natural,' he replied, with complete equanimity. "'But perhaps our ill provision may not be widely known to our enemies. "'And is it not a fact within your own military experience,' Captain Wyndham, he went on, "'looking him in the face, that it is what one supposes an enemy's forces to be, "'rather than what they actually are, which sometimes turns the scale?' "'It was the Englishman who coloured, this time.' In its absence of specific reference to the mishap at Highbridge, the retort was just sufficiently veiled to enable him, had he chosen, to affect unconsciousness of its sting. But he was too proud to do this. (laughs) I deserve that, he admitted, scrambling to his feet with the words. I'm not such a dolt as to be unaware to what you allude. That you feel obliged to remind me of last Friday's disgrace proves that my own remarks were not in the best of taste, and I apologize for them. "'but his tormentor's apology "'appeared to embarrass you and Cameron "'much more than his thrusts. "'Oh, I'm sorry I said that, Captain Wyndham,' "'he exclaimed, with a vivacity "'which rather astonished the other. "'I ought not to have taunted you "'with a calamity for which you were not to blame. "'That was in worse taste still.' Hey, Gad, Mr. Cameron, "'you're too punctilious,' said Keith carelessly. "'But if you are of that mind, "'I don't say that I am, "'we may fairly cry quits. "'For, after all, pursued Ewan, throwing down his plaid. Since you are not witnessing our preparations of your own free will, I suppose you are at liberty to make what observations you please upon them. You seem bent upon making allowances for me, returned Keith with a smile. However, I do not complain of that, and if fate should ever reverse our positions, and give you, for instance, into my hands, I hope I may be able to show the same generosity. Ardroy, who was now unbuckling his broadsword, stopped and gazed at him rather intently in the feeble lantern light. Feeble because it still had to contend with a measure of wet daylight. Why? Do you then anticipate our meeting again, Captain Wyndham? he asked after a moment. I anticipate nothing, Mr. Cameron. I'm no wizard to foretell the future. Yet, but for the fact that we could not meet save as enemies, I vow it would give me pleasure to think that we might one day encounter each other again. But, feeling somehow, that the young man standing there looking at him took this for a mere façon de parler, he added, with a return to his bantering tone, you can have no notion how much this tour, albeit a trifle too reminiscent of a Roman triumph, has been alleviated by having so agreeable a cicerone. though indeed, in the last twenty-four hours, my glimpses of you have been few, too few. So expressed, his sentiments had of course small chance of being taken for sincere, the Highlander, indeed, for all reply gave a little shrug that was almost like a Frenchman's, spread his plaid upon the bare earth floor, and laid his broadsword beside it. "'Surely you're not going to sleep in that plaid,' exclaimed Keith, stirred out of his levity. "'Why, tis drenched. Take my cloak. I've no mind to sleep yet, and shall not need it.' But Ewan, without stiffness, declined, saying that a wet plaid was of no consequence, and indeed but kept one the warmer." some,' he added, and the Englishman gasped at the information, wrung them out at night and water for that reason. All he would accept was some handfuls of heather for a pillow, and then, lying down, his sword convenient to his hand, he wrapped himself in the folds of damp tartan, and in five minutes was fast asleep. But Keith, as he had said, was not sleepy, and after a while, feeling restless, he strolled to the doorway. Door the hut had none, when he got there, he was aware of a rigid figure, muffled in a plaid, standing in the rain, just out of the direct line of vision. The inevitable Lochlan, watching over his master's slumbers. He turned his head, and Keith could see a contraction pass over his dark features. But the English officer was not to be intimidated by a scowl from studying, if he wished, the sodden, cloud-enfolded landscape, and the sheets of rain driving in the twilight over the waters of Loch Eel, "'though it was not a cheerful prospect. "'What was going to happen to him "'when his parole expired tomorrow? "'At the far end of Loch Eel, "'Loch Linne joined it at right angles, "'and on Loch Linne was Fort William "'with its loyal garrison. "'Tomorrow, the Highland force "'would proceed along Loch Eel, "'and every step would bring him nearer to his friends. "'He left the doorway after a few moments "'and looked down at the sleeper on the floor.' His head sunk in the bundle of heather, and his arm lying across his broadsword. The embraces of the goddess of ague seemed to be agreeable. I shall be sorry to say farewell tomorrow, my friend. Deuce take me if I quite know why. But I hardly think you will. Then at last he went and lay down on his heap of heather, and listened to the sound of the rain, always, since he was a boy, connected with the worst memories of his life there was the dismal day of his father's funeral. He had been but five then, yet he remembered it perfectly. Rain. Rain on the nodding plumes of the great black carriage, which had taken his father away. The day some years later, on which his childish mind first realized that his adored mother cared nothing for him. Rain, a soft mist of it. And the night in London, four years past now, the night that he had discovered what Lydia Shelmerdine really was. Against the closely curtained windows of her boudoir, it could be heard to dash in fury, for there was a great wind that evening, every time that there came a pause in her high, frightened, lying speech, which ran on the more that he stood there saying so little. The rose had slipped loose from her close-gathered powdered hair, her gauze and ivory fan lay snapped at her feet, "'and the rain sluiced pitilessly against the windows. "'Into that tempest Keith Wyndham had presently gone out, "'and once away from the scented room, "'had known nothing of its fury, "'though it drenched him to the skin, "'and he had forced his way all dripping "'into the presence of the man who had seduced her. "'No, the man whom she had seduced, "'and had told him to his face "'that he was welcome to his conquest, "'that he did not propose to dispute it with him, "'nor even to demand satisfaction.' The lady was not worth fighting about, not worth the risking of a man's life, even of yours. There had been witnesses, vastly surprised witnesses, of conduct so unusual. But he thought his way of dealing with a situation more effective than the ordinary, and perhaps it was. He never saw either of the two who had betrayed him again. Riding behind his young Achilles next afternoon, Keith Wyndham kept looking at Loch Eel, Now shining and placid, the seaweed of its level shore orange in the sun, and the great mountain miles away over Fort William mirrored, upside down, as clear as the original. If only he could reach Fort William! But Ardroy, to whom his word of honour still bound him, would certainly see to it that at the expiry of his parole this evening he was secured in some other way. "'I dare say he will make it as little irksome for me as he can,' thought Keith, looking at the tall, easy figure sitting the horse just ahead of him, on whose gay tartan and ribbon-tied auburn hair the westering sun was shining full. He's an uncommon good fellow, and we shall never see each other again, I suppose. And again, he thought, not that he will care, and why the devil should I! Then the stream of men and conveyances began to leave the lockside, making toward Mr. John Cameron's house of Fassafirn, standing where Glen Sulag made a breach into the mountains, though Lochiel's Burgess brother, who would not join the prince, had carried his prudence to the length of absenting himself from his property, lest he should be open to the charge of having entertained that compromising guest. It was not until they came to the gate in their turn that Ardroy slewed himself round in his saddle to speak to the captive, and said that he would do what he could for him in the way of accommodation, if he did not object to waiting a little so Keith gave up his horse to one of Ewan's gillies, and, working his way through the press, waited under a tree and revolved plans. But, in truth, he could make none, until he knew how he was to be secured. Sooner than he had expected, his warden reappeared, and, taking him in at a side entry, conducted him to the very top of the humming house. I thought this little room might serve for us, he said, opening the door of a small, half-furnished garret, and Keith thought that their mails were already there. I do not know how many others may be thrust in here, but there is at least one bed. And so there was, a sort of pallet. You had best establish your claim to it at once, Captain Wyndham, or, better still, I will do it for you. And, mindful as ever of his prisoner's comfort, he unfastened his plaid and tossed it onto the mattress. I will come and fetch you to supper. I suppose there will be some. "'Keith could not help looking after his departing figure, "'with a smile which held both amusement and liking. "'He could not, however, afford to let sensibility interfere with what was in his mind now. "'Whatever were the reason, Arjoy seemed to have completely forgotten that in—' "'Keith consulted his watch. "'In another twenty minutes, his captive's parole would expire, "'and he would be free to take himself off. "'If he could.' Or was it that he had not mentioned the coming change of conditions from some feeling of delicacy, because it would involve setting a guard? The Englishman sat down upon the pallet and considered his chances. They depended almost entirely upon whether in twenty minutes' time there was a Highlander posted at the door of this room. But Ardre had spoken of fetching him to supper. Oh, heaven send, then, that supper was delayed. Perhaps he could creep out of the garret, and conceal himself elsewhere, until he found an opportunity of getting clear away later in the evening. Yet there was no special advantage in waiting for nightfall, even if Ardroy's forgetfulness extended so far, because the nights were apt to be so disconcertingly light. No, the great difficulty at any hour was his uniform. And here he found himself looking at the roll from Ewan Cameron's saddle, lying on the solitary half-broken chair. But Keith Wyndham was much too proud a man not to have a strict regard for his pledged word. He could hardly prevent the entrance of a plan of escape into a brain which was, as yet, on parole, but he would not take the smallest step to put it into execution before the appointed hour should strike. To pass the time, he would scribble a note to explain his conduct, and, wondering the while whether he should not have to destroy it, even before he had finished it, he tore out a leaf from his pocket-book and began— Dear Mr. Cameron, To justify my unadvertised departure, I am fain to put you in mind that I gave my parole of honour for the space of a night, from the day and hour of my capture by you, in the evening of last Friday. In ten minutes more, that period will have expired, and I trust you will not think it any infraction of military honour that, without having previously recalled that fact to your memory, I intend at half after six to attempt my freedom." I shall always retain the most cordial remembrance of your hospitality, and though the pilgrimage of the last few days has been somewhat prolonged, it has enabled me to be present upon a most interesting occasion. Adieu, and forgive me for supposing that when you are more accustomed to a military life, he will not repeat the oversight by which I am hoping to profit. Your most obedient, humble servant, Keith Wyndham, Captain." When he had finished this effusion of which the last paragraph, it cannot be denied, afforded him a special pleasure. He still waited, watch in hand. At half-past six exactly, he rose from the pallet, and, feeling remarkably like a footpad, opened Ardroy's modest baggage with hasty fingers. It proved to contain a clean shirt, a pair of stockings, a few odds and ends, and a kilt. The plunderer held this up in some dismay, for he would very greatly have preferred True's such as Ardroy was wearing at present, but it was this nether garment or his own, and in a remarkably short space of time he was surveying his bare knees with equal disgust and misgiving. No knees that he had seen this week under Tartan were as white as that. Happily, the garret was dusty, and therefore his legs, if not respectably tanned, could at least look dirty. He thought at first of retaining his uniform coat, which he fancied could be fairly well hidden by Ardroy's plaid. How he blessed him for leaving it behind but the skirts were a little too long and the blue cuffs with their gallons too conspicuous and so he decided to go coatless thereupon he began experiments with a plaid what a devil of a lot of it there was he wished he had a bonnet to pull forward on his brows but one could not expect everything to be provided the want however reminded him of his incongruous wig and he took this off and placed it with his discarded uniform under the mattress. And so, there he was, clad in a costume he would as soon have assumed as the trappings of a red Indian. And clad very insecurely, too, he feared, for Ardroy's kilt was too big for him, and he could not fasten it any tighter. Still no sign of any person coming. Keith looked doubtfully at his host's rifled baggage. It was his duty to regain his liberty by any lawful means, but he had certainly acted the part of a pickpocket. The only compensation in his power was to pay for the clothes he had taken, since those he had left behind were no adequate exchange. He pulled out his purse, having small idea of the worth of the purloined garments, and still less of how Ardroy would view the payment. He suspected that the Highlander might not relish it, but for his own peace of mind he felt constrained to make it. And so he wrapped three guineas in his farewell letter and laid the letter on the chair. Then... He softly opened the garret door, went to the head of the stairs, and listened. The immediate neighbourhood of the little room was deserted, and the sounds from below suggested that the bustle which existed in Fassafurn House that evening was more likely to help than to hinder a pretended Cameron who desired to slip out unnoticed. Captain Wyndham settled the plaid more to his satisfaction, and began with an unconcerned air to descend the stairs but he was clutching nervously at the top of the philebeg, and his legs felt abominably cold. Some three quarters of an hour later, Donald Cameron of Lochiel and Alexander MacDonald of Keppoch, he whose clansmen had held Highbridge, were talking together outside the front of Fassifern House. About an hour previously, it had been arranged that the heavy baggage was to go forward that night along Loch side with a strong convoy of Cameron's, A large escort was required, because at Korpach they would have to run the gauntlet of the neighbourhood of Fort William, on the other side of the water, a danger which the prince and the rest of the little force would avoid next day, by taking a route through Glen Zulag, impossible to the baggage train. And I am sending my young cousin Ardroy in command of it, concluded Lochiel, though the news was something of the suddenness to him. But he will be ready. He is a very punctual person, is Ewan. And they went on to speak of other matters of macleod of macleod's refusal to observe his solemn engagement to join the prince even if he came alone which was still more resented than the withdrawal of sir alexander Macdonald of the isles and of what sir john cope would do and where he would elect to give them battle for that the english general would take his alarmed way up to inverness without daring to face them had not occurred to the most sanguine Lochiel indeed, was looking very grave. Keith Wyndham's flash of insight had been correct. He was not deluded. His was the case of a man who was risking everything, life, fortune, lands, the future of his young family, against his better judgment, because, more scrupulous of his plighted word than the chief of MacLeod or MacDonald of Sleet, he felt himself too deeply engaged to draw back without loss of honour. Yet, unlike MacLeod's, his engagement only pledged his support in the case that the prince came with French assistance, and he had come without it. The fate of his whole clan lay on Lochiel's shoulders. More, the fate of every man in the rising, for if he had held back the spark would have been quenched at the outset for lack of fuel. That knowledge was a heavy burden to be laid on a man who, far from being a free-booting chief, had striven all his life for the betterment of his people. "'Yes,' he was saying, for the second time. "'If we can reach and hold the pass over the Coriaric before Cope.' "'At that moment there was a rapid step behind the two men. Lochiel heard his own name uttered in sharp accents, "'and, turning quickly, beheld the young commander of the baggage convoy "'in a state of high discomposure. "'My dear Ewan, what is wrong?' "'He's gone!' "'And so agitated was Ardroy's tone, so black his brow, "'that Lochiel's own colour changed.' "'Who? Not the prince?' "'The English officer, my prisoner. "'He's escaped.' "'His parole expired at half past six this evening, "'and I, fool that I was, "'had forgot it over this business of the escort. "'He'll go straight to Fort William "'with information of our numbers and our arms. "'Oh, I deserve you should dismiss me, Lochiel. "'He's been away near an hour, I suppose. "'Shall I write after him?' "'No, I cannot, "'unless you give the convoy to someone else. "'And truly I think I'm not fit.' Luchiel broke in, laying a hand on his arm. "'Tis not while pursuing him, my dear Ewan, "'nor any very great loss to be rid of him. "'I doubt not, too, that they have already at Fort William "'all the information that Captain Wyndham can give. "'But how, with that uniform, did he get away?' "'The enraged young man ground his teeth. "'He was not wearing his uniform. "'He stole some clothes from me, a filibug and my plaid, "'and he left me a damned impertinent letter, and these.' He unclosed the hand and held out three gold coins. Isn't that the final insult, that he must leave so much more than the things were worth, as though (sighs) to— He appeared unable to finish the sentence. If I ever meet him again. Back went his arm, and Captain Wyndham's guineas hurtled violently into the shrubbery of Fassofern House. End of Section 7